Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Good, good. Nice, good, sunshiny Sunday for us to be all here together, right? That's all right. Well, glad that you weathered the rain and that you are all here. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here at CTK. Excited to be with you all this morning. If you have his word, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 42. We'll be continuing in the story of Joseph. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've, I've had a pretty busy summer so far, it seems like, you know, it just all these things happening, trips and meeting people, and I know for you guys, it's like, well, kids are out of school and they're in my house, and, and time is just flying by sometimes, and sometimes it seems like it's dragging so slow, but uh, like, like me, probably a lot of you have had plenty of uh, trips and vacations and things to do and things to see this summer, and one of the things I was thinking about uh, from earlier in my childhood, I remember every other year, I think it was, we would have these big, massive family reunions, right? Family reunions, in case, like, I, I don't know what your thoughts are about them. They're like the eye roll of family vacations for me, because it's like, okay, this is going to be weird. Here we are, uh, meeting all these people, and all the awkwardness and just weirdness that comes with these people that you really don't know, but you're kind of related to, and it's just like this weird, quirky thing to me. But I know for some of you guys, family reunions or family gatherings in general, they're, they're not awkward and quirky or, or even fun and exciting. They can be kind of painful. There's, there's weird baggage there. Maybe there's, maybe there's drama unfolding in the family, some broken relationships, just some things that are tough and hard to work through. And I think that's exactly what's going on where we pick up this morning in Genesis chapter 42, a sort of reunion uh, is happening as Joseph and his brothers come back together for the first time. And, and, and unlike those fun, awkward, quirky family reunions, this one is painful. There's baggage there, emotional and relational baggage. And whether it's with your family or not, something I know to be true of every single person in the room this morning is that you have some experience of relational brokenness. You know what it's like to have hard things happen in relationship with other people. You might be here this morning and your marriage is on the rocks. You might be here this morning and you say, I, I feel like I'm losing my kids. We're arguing and bickering all the time. They want nothing to do with me. You might be here this morning, you just feel like you're pressed under the weight of this, of this vindictive boss. Maybe you have difficulty with your coworkers. Maybe it's issues within your own family. Maybe it's that friend from college back in the day where things just kind of ended weird and never got better. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know already, but relationships can be difficult. They might be our deepest source of joy, but they can also be our deepest source of anger and frustration, pain and trauma. But church, I want us to see this morning a story of redemption in Joseph's life where God, even despite the difficulties that came on him, was sovereignly and providentially at work through his difficult relationships. And my hope for us this morning is that we will see how it is true for us that God works through difficult relationships. And so we're going to walk through this passage in Genesis 42 together. And then I just have three truths about it, what it looks like for God to work through difficult relationships. So let's start here. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We'll start with this section. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. 
Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers for fear that harm might come on, on him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among with the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now you might remember in our passage last week, we saw in Genesis 1, just for some context, that, that Joseph was experiencing some hardship. He'd been in and out of prison, and now he had kind of risen through the ranks and, and had a little bit of a place of influence. And, and Pharaoh had heard that he was pretty good at interpreting dreams. And Pharaoh had, had a dream himself. So he brings Joseph in and asks him to interpret this dream, and, and he tells him, what your dream means is that there is going to be this long famine in the land all around us, but we here in Egypt, we're going to have plenty. So Pharaoh makes plans, right? He, he says, okay, we're going to open up our grain reserves, we'll, we'll sell to the neighboring communities, and he places this wise man, Joseph, who interpreted this dream in charge of the whole thing. And so where we are right here in Genesis 42, uh, we're picking up back on this story in Canaan with Jacob gathering around his son, seeing the famine that's unfolding, just as that dream had said. And it may be the most dad-like way possible. He says, stop standing around and starving. There's grain for sale in Egypt. So they go. They go with everybody. And it says that it says in verse 5, all the other people coming to do the same. I'm picturing maybe something like going to Costco on a Saturday. All these people coming in. And there are a handful of interesting things here, but these few stand out. The first is this. By the time the brothers came to Egypt and saw their brother, they didn't know it was him, but by the time they came and Joseph recognized his brothers, it had been 20 years since they had seen one another. 20 years. Joseph was 17 years old. I don't even remember what happened to me at 17 years old, and now he's 37. It had been two decades since they had seen one another and since the brothers had seen Joseph. They thought he was gone. If you can, just imagine the kind of baggage that all of them must have been carrying. That after 20 years for the brothers, they had spent two decades holding on to this lie of what they had done to their brother, holding on to the guilt. And we later see in this, in this passage that it is absolutely crushing them. But for Joseph, he had essentially spent the last 20 years hiding and trying to forget his problems. What we saw in Genesis 41 is that he literally named his child Manasseh, which means causing to forget, because he wanted to forget the pain of his father's house. He wanted so bad to forget the pain that he had experienced at the hands of his brothers. And I guess what we see, that that old adage that time heals all wounds didn't exactly hold true for either of them. Let's pick up here in verse 7. It says this, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers. And he spoke roughly to them, where did you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Basically, he's saying, you're, you're coming to see how you can maybe infiltrate and steal what we've got. You're coming to see the nakedness of the land. 
And they said, we are your servants. We are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I have said, you are spies. And by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, a messenger back, right? And let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, and whether there is truth in you. So on this accusation of spies, it says he throws them in prison for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain where you are in custody, and let the rest go back and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, in truth, they're talking amongst themselves, right? In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul, talking about Joseph, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. Remember, they're speaking a language that they didn't know this, this Egyptian would understand because there was an interpreter between them. But then Joseph turned away from them and wept. And after some time, he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So it says the brothers loaded up their grain and they set off on their journey. And we see a bit of irony here, right? Don't we? Because in this passage in Genesis 37, what we saw is Joseph telling his brothers, hey, I had a dream and you, one day you're going to bow down to me. And they were so angry that they sold him into slavery for it. They were so jealous. But here it is happening here. But even with this reunion, Joseph's not so quick to reveal himself. Instead, he's, he's, he's wrestling, I think, with difficult and complicated feelings about his brothers. I think he's angry, or maybe he's just being cautious, right? Because he doesn't know if he can trust them. So he accuses them of being spies, and he throws them in prison. But then three days later, when they come back together, he's in tears listening to them talk about their guilt and all that they were wrestling with about what they had done to him. I think this picture reminds us that relational wounds run deep, don't they? Relational wounds run deep, and they can be so complicated. And because of that, I think that Joseph is learning an important lesson that he had not yet had to learn, and that's that you can't forget your way into forgiveness. He couldn't run far enough. He couldn't hide well enough. He couldn't forget his way into forgiveness. Relational wounds are the kinds that stick with you. They can't be fixed by running and avoiding. Healing can't be achieved by avoiding our problems. And the same holds true for the brothers who I think are showing us how powerfully guilt can work in our lives. Because when the brothers uncover the, the, the bags that they have and they see that, that Joseph's gift, they, he had told them, put the money back in the bags. And when the brothers see that they have all the grain they came to buy and the money they came to buy it with, it says in verse, 30, or verse 28 that their hearts sank. Their hearts sank. Because they believe that this must have been 
some elaborate scheme to frame them as spies who came to steal the grain. Think about how twisted that is. That when they saw this generous gift, they were so conditioned by their guilt to believe nothing good could happen to them. They believe this must be some judgment from God against us. Now with all this coming together, everyone is forced to face what has been happening all these years, all the anger and frustration, the hurt and guilt, the trauma that has lasted is coming to the surface and they have to deal with this. And friends, let me just say this. I think by God's grace, we're going to have those kinds of things happen in our life. Yeah, by God's grace, we're going to have those kinds of things happen in our lives. God might bring difficult people and relationships in our lives so that he can work through them. And it's a good thing when we come to the place, as it is for Joseph and his brothers, for God to expose the brokenness in our ugly past, our broken relationships, because in these tough and difficult things, God is working all things together for good and for our redemption. It's a grace of God. So we pick up in verse 27, it says this, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey the fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to their father Jacob, they recount this entire story, and they empty their sacks, it says in verse 35, before them, and every man's money was there just as they had come with it. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And so Joseph's reaction, or Jacob's reaction, was not much different. After the brothers recount everything to their father, Jacob is grieved by the news. Because now he knows he's got to send another son, place another son in the line of danger in order to get one back. And it seems evident to me that there's some, there's some stuff going on with Jacob too, maybe some unresolved pain and guilt shaping his perceptions also because he also feared this must be the judgment of God come against us for what my sons did. As we read this story, as we read this story, no doubt what we see is an absolute emotional and relational mess that if we're honest, looks a little bit more like our lives than we might, not, than we might care to admit, does it not? But as I said from the beginning, I want us to see how in the midst of these things, God is working through it all and how the same is true for us. So by way of application, I'd like to draw to mind three truths about how God works through difficult relationships. Three truths about what it looks like for God to work through difficult relationships in our life, just like he's doing here for Joseph and his brothers. The first is this, God shapes us through suffering. God shapes us through suffering. I'd encourage you, think about every great man and woman of God that you can from the Bible and find one who didn't know well what it meant to suffer. Find one who didn't know well what it meant to suffer. 
And Joseph is among many whose experience was one of unimaginable hardship and trial because despite having done no wrong, God had basically put him through a two-decade humility program of enslavement and temptation, false imprisonment and slander, all because his brothers couldn't manage their jealousy and anger, and they turned against him to harm him. Yet church, despite what had happened, I think what we see in Joseph's life is the beautiful and profound mystery of God's sovereign grace at work because despite the life-altering, gut-wrenching, horrific suffering that Joseph had experienced at the hands of his brothers, he recognized at the end of his story that God was sovereign over it and was working through it all. In Genesis 50, when he finally comes back together with his brothers, he makes this declaration, what you meant for evil, God meant for for good. What you meant for evil, what you did to me, God meant it for good. Friends, this is the mysterious paradox of God's grace that I want us to grab onto this morning, that God can take what is evil, the hard and tough things that we experience, and he can use it for good. And we see that happening so often on the battleground of our relationships, that God can take what is evil and use it for good. That is true this morning for the person who has been gaslighted by a narcissistic abuser. That is true this morning for the person who is a victim of slander. That is true this morning for those torn down by vindictive colleagues. That is true this morning for the sexually abused, for those cast out of their families, from those wearied by the onslaught of a difficult and hard marriage. God can take what is evil and use it for good. That no matter what we experience in our relationships, we know that God is able to make good with what isn't. So what does that mean? Well, sometimes it means that, that God is going to test our faith like he did for Joseph. Sometimes the way God is going to do that, the way he's going to shape us through suffering is by testing our faith. You might know this passage from 1 Peter 6 through 7, but it basically describes the suffering and trials that we experience in this life, like precious metals being refined by fire. God uses these things to strengthen us in our faith. Unlike what our misery might have us believe, these trials and these tests are not meant to push us away from God, but rather to draw us near. When you experience difficulty in your life and in your relationships, God is not trying to extinguish what little faith you have holding on by a thread. He's trying to make in you a faith that lasts. So church, this morning, as you think through these difficult people, these difficult relationships, all the range of experiences that you have gone through, all the anger that you might be holding on to, all the frustration, maybe the guilt of how you've wronged someone else. Consider that God is working through these things to shape you into who he wants to be, to shape you into the image of Christ for your good and for his glory. So God might test our faith sometimes, but sometimes God uses these difficult relationships and experience that suffering comes by exposing us to hard things to convict us of sin. 
You see, it's often in these difficult relationships, these, these hard circumstances we find ourselves in, these difficult people, that God reveals things in our lives that just shouldn't be there. As was the case with Joseph's brothers, God actually was using, we can see him working in their lives, that they are wrestling with this burden of guilt over what they've done, that they feel a, a conviction about what had happened, that they believed that, that, that we had caused something and now we are experiencing judgment for it. God was working in their lives to convict them of sin. So let me ask you this. How might God be using the difficult people and relationships in your life, both past and present, how might God be using those difficult relationships to convict you of sin? Where might God be teaching you patience for those who frustrate you to no end? Where might God be teaching you radical love and mercy for those who you feel like can't be forgiven? How is God shaping you to be long-suffering and patient and willing to be harmed by those who bite and attack and complain at your every single move and word. Whether God is strengthening our, our, whether God is strengthening what is there in our life by testing our faith, or He's convicting us of sin to show us what shouldn't be in our lives, what we know from all of these things is that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Romans eight tells us. And here's what that means. That means that every bit of suffering that we experience through difficult relationship or at the hands of, of difficult people, all of these things are being used by God as a work of redemption. So then what should we do? If that's true, that, that okay, I, I know this morning, I, I know what relational brokenness looks like. I've got plenty of junk in my own life. My heart is damaged just as much as the next guy. I've wronged people just as much as, as, as the next guy. What do I do then? If, if all of these things are true, if God is really shaping us through suffering, and I, I don't see what it, what it looks like, what do I need to do then? And I think the Bible would tell us this. We should trust in God's sovereign work. We have to trust in God's sovereign work. We have to believe that when we face these things, when we experience hard and difficult things, that our suffering is not meaningless. As 2 Corinthians 4, one of the greatest passages, I think, in all of the Bible that speaks to our suffering, it says, for these light and momentary afflictions are, are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. That suffering is not meaningless. That is one of the great hopes of our faith, that God can use those hard things and difficult relationships and excruciatingly painful situations for good. So ask yourself this morning, what difficult relationships and people in my life do I need to trust God with? Where do I need to trust God with these things? Where do I need him to who lift my heart and know that he is at work in the middle of these things? Where do I need to trust God? And I'd invite you this morning that just as Joseph did to rest in the goodness and faithfulness, to trust in the sovereign hand of God, to use that pain, that frustration, and that anger that you have experienced in your life through other people for good. He can do it. The second truth is this, that through difficult relationships, God teaches us to be merciful and forgiving. God teaches us to be merciful and forgiving. Based on everything that had happened 
in Joseph's life. Everything that he had experienced. He was a prime candidate for being angry and vengeful and bitter. Of all the people in all the world, if we look at somebody and say, okay, they've got a reason for that, it would be Joseph. He'd had 20 years to lament on and stew on the hurt that his family had caused him. All the while, not just thinking about it, actively experiencing the brokenness that they caused him. Through enslavement, temptation, false imprisonment, he'd had a rough go. Of all the people in the world, he was a prime candidate for being angry and bitter and vengeful. Yet when Joseph had the opportunity, when God brought his brothers back into his life, what did he do? Rather than lashing out in anger, rather than subjecting them to the torment that he had experienced, he chose mercy instead. He chose mercy instead. I think one of the greatest works that God can do in our lives is teach us to forgive the people we think are unforgivable. One of the greatest works that God can do in our lives is to teach us to forgive the people that we think are unforgivable because by nature, when we are wronged, we are often vindictive and vengeful and angry. Given the opportunity that Joseph had, surely we would have let them have a piece of our mind and we sort of feel justified in doing that because, hey, we were the ones that were wrong. They did this, not me. I get to be mad. Hard things happen to me, I get to be mad. I get to be frustrated. My bitterness is okay. If you, had, if you had experienced an ounce of what I had experienced, you would know that the way I feel is fine. But the gospel points us to another way. The gospel points us to another way. Rather than stewing in our anger, living in our bitterness, lashing out when we have the opportunity for vengeance, God teaches us to be merciful by being first merciful to us. This is our standard. Look with me in Ephesians 4. It'll be on the screen. Verse, starting in verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. In other words, the way that we view and treat other people is an imitation of how Christ views and treats us. The way we view and treat other people is an imitation of how God views and treats us. So how do we do this? How do we actually do? The Bible says, okay, yeah, be merciful, be kind, be tender-hearted." Just as Christ and, or God in Christ Jesus forgave you, how do we actually do that? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to see ourselves as in need of mercy. We got to see ourselves as in need of mercy ourselves. I love this parable in Matthew chapter 18. Maybe you're familiar with this, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And this unmerciful servant, as soon as he was forgiven of this massive debt that he had to his boss, he's walking around on the street and sees somebody who owes him a few bucks. And he gets angry, takes him to court, throws him in jail. He says, you owe me that money. And the parable points to this, 
that after this man had harshly shaken down a man who owed him relatively little, this, this, Jesus uses the story to point us to see that our being forgiven in Christ Jesus of a great debt should transform the way that we are forgiving to one another. It means that we should be characterized by both a willingness and an eagerness to forgive. We've got to have a willingness to forgive because even if we're wronged, it's not an excuse to be unforgiving. Not a lot of caveats when the Bible points us to forgiveness and mercy. It doesn't say, in your best judgment, if you think it's possible, be forgiving. Right? No, rather it says, Christ has forgiven you of an immeasurable debt. You can be forgiving also to your brothers. We have to be willing to forgive. But I think how we forgive is also important. It seems consistent with God's mercy and grace for us, that we not only show a willingness to forgive, but also an eagerness to forgive. And here's what I mean by that. It means that when difficult relationships cause us hurt and pain, we aren't first to give ourselves over to bitterness, but instead we're asking God, God, make my heart ready to forgive. Jesus demonstrates this well, does he not? When, when he's being tortured on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And we're not Jesus, but... But he's showing us a way of radical forgiveness because he says, despite what they might do to me, like I, I, I came here to cleanse their sins. I came here to forgive them. The same should be true of us. And, and for some of us, listen, I know. When you think about all the wrong that's done to you, all the brokenness that you've experienced because of somebody else, that seems like an impossible task. You say, how am I supposed to forgive the person that did this to me. How am I to do that? You might be here this morning, and that's you. And you are holding someone hostage to your anger, your pain, and your trauma. You are holding them hostage, refusing to forgive until, until maybe they give you the perfect groveling apology or maybe they do something to make right what they had done wrong or, or maybe, maybe they get everything just right and you're holding them hostage until they get it just right. You're unwilling to forgive until you feel like you've found some level of healing and holding them to that. Let me just say this. I get it. I, I really do. I've been there far more recently than I would care to admit, where I experienced wrong and hardship at the hands of someone else. I watched someone slander me, lie about me. I watched them hurt and harm the people around me. And out of the wreckage of all of those things, Sometimes I still can't imagine forgiving him. I can't imagine forgiving him of the harm that he caused me, of what he took out of my life and what he had caused to the people around me. Seems like too tall of an order, if I'm honest, to forgive that man. It seems like too much for me to be merciful and forgiving. I feel like if, if I forgive him, 
This is what often goes in my head. If, if I forgive him, I, I'm giving up my sense of justice. I'm giving up my sense of leverage, of my control over the situation. I feel like in not forgiving him, in harboring all that anger and bitterness towards him, that in that I have made some kind of semblance of healing for myself. And so no thanks, I'll hold on to what I've got. But friends, let me invite you this morning. I'm learning this myself to the freedom that comes from forgiveness. You will taste no sweeter liberty than to forgive the person that has wronged you. You will feel no greater freedom than to forgive those who have wronged you. Louis Smith says it this way, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and find out that prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and find out it wasn't you holding them, it was, it was you that was set free. If that's you this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask God to make you radically merciful and forgiving. I'm praying this every day. Where your heart is cold and numb and bitter and angry and frustrated when you are sitting in and steeping in this trauma that you have experienced from somebody else, ask that he would soften you and fill you with the love and mercy of Christ, that you would see yourself as in need of great forgiveness and great mercy from Christ, and that that would transform the way that you view those people in your life. God commands us of this, does he not? So this morning, if that's you, I want you to do this. Make the most confident request that a man can make of God to grant to you what he asks of you. Say, God, if, if you're calling me to this, if you're calling me to be forgiving and merciful, if you're working in my heart this way, I'm asking you to give it to me because I, I don't have it. God, transform my heart. Make me merciful, forgiving. The third truth is this. In difficult relationships and with difficult people, God calls us to reconciliation. God calls us to reconciliation. Despite the wrong that was done to him, despite his own wrestling with sin and complicated feelings about his brothers, what we see in this story is Joseph beginning the long road towards reconciliation with his brothers. What we see is his heart changing, his life forming, him creating the opportunity for reconciliation. And I think this is important for us because hear this, you being forgiving and merciful is only half of the equation. The Bible consistently, as is modeled here in this passage in the life of Joseph, ultimately points us to reconciliation. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Colossians 3, 13 says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another. As, as, as if any of you has a grievance against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If you're here this morning and there's some brokenness and sin in your life, there's some difficult people and hard relationships that are, that are unearthing a lot of stuff going on in you, there's a few things that I think the Bible calls us to. The first is this, we are to be reconciled to God. We have to recognize that when we sin against someone else, when we wrong someone else, these sins are first and foremost 
sins against God. When we sin against another, when we, another, we are unkind, unloving, unforgiving, when wrong is done, even when wrong is done to us, we are grieving a person who was made in the image of God. That's another believer. You're grieving someone that belongs to God's family. And the Bible is clear. We can't be a friend of God and an enemy to his family. If you're here this morning and you're convicted over how you've wronged someone, maybe you're like the brothers and you're, you're working through some of those guilty feelings. You've slandered someone. You've attacked them. Maybe it wasn't even public. Maybe you wronged them in private. Maybe every time they're out of the room, you can't help but open your mouth and speak ill against them. You can't help but complain and bite against them. Maybe you've done something far worse than, than could be imagined here, and you're, you're challenging Joseph's brothers for the worst thing that you can do to someone. No matter where you are here this morning, recognize that the Bible calls you to repent. If you're convicted over where you have wronged someone, the Bible calls you to repent. Confess these sins to God. And you may not even be there or be ready, but ask Him to change and soften your heart towards those people you've sinned against. And know this, for Sean 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And whether we have wronged someone or we feel that we have been wronged by someone, the instruction is the same. We are to pursue reconciliation with one another. And hear me on this. Here's what pursuing reconciliation doesn't mean. Pursuing reconciliation doesn't mean that we simply set everything aside or, or do a lot to try to forget or really just move past what happened. Reconciliation isn't found in forgetting. Joseph experienced that firsthand, did he not? That's not reconciliation. For you to pursue reconciliation doesn't mean you have to give up on the wrong that was done to you. Rather, this. Reconciliation is the act of putting forgiveness and repentance into motion. Reconciliation is the act of putting repentance, if you were the one wrong, or forgiveness, if you have been wronged, into motion. Lewis Mead also says this, he says, he says that, that, uh, that forgiveness is, is one person, but reunion takes two. Reconciliation is the work of putting together repentance and forgiveness in motion. So let me ask you this, if you're aware this morning that you have wronged someone, you have to confess that sin to them. Confess that sin to God, confess that sin to them. I would encourage you, do that in person, to their face, get in front of them and say, I have wronged you. I have humbled myself before God and I feel convicted over the hurt that I have caused you and I'm asking for your forgiveness. Do that in front of their face. Heck, there may be people right now in this room and you're thinking about somebody that's just sitting over here. Get in front of that person. Confess those sins to God and confess that to them. Do the hard work of not just letting it go or saying like, well, they've probably forgotten about it. Oh, they've probably moved on. There's nothing left to see here. No, it said, do the hard work of being honest before God with yourself and in front of other people. Confess your sins to one another, the Bible says. And don't just confess your sins to one another if they're not against one another. Confess your sins to one another if they're also against one another. Confess these things before them. So maybe that's you. 
You're like the brothers and you're wrestling with the guilt of what you've done wrong. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, hey, listen, I'm on the other side of the coin and and I've been wronged a great deal. Here's my encouragement to you. First, I would ask you this. Search your heart and see if you are harboring any anger or bitterness and unforgiveness towards them. Or towards God because of them. And repent of that then I would encourage you insofar as it is reasonable and safe to tell them specifically how and why you feel as though you have been wronged by them. I feel like if you are going to sin against another person by, by, by committing murder in your heart, is what Jesus calls anger, if you're going to sin against another person in that way, you at least owe them the opportunity to say it to their face and, and say, here's how you've wronged me, and I feel hurt by that. I've forgiven you for that, but I, I want you to hear that. I want you to know what you have caused me. And listen, if you were to do that, if you were to pursue reconciliation in this way, that person that that you might be approaching might not even know or remember that they did this to you. And they might not even be ready to repent of what they did. They might say, yeah, thanks, but I don't, maybe they get defensive. I I wasn't really in the wrong, though. That may be the case. But I think if we're going to take what Hebrews 12, 14 says seriously, to make every effort, then we at least have to take a cue from Joseph and be obedient to at least create the opportunity for reconciliation. I know the Bible calls us to that. I don't know what's going to happen after that. It, actually, it may hurt you worse. They, they may double down. They may not repent. It may go nowhere. But I think we can be faithful and obedient to create those opportunities as we see modeled in Joseph. Why? Well, because this radical exercise of honesty and forgiveness allows God to work deeply in our own souls. It allows him to to get in our hearts and clear us and rid us of any anger or hostility we might have towards another person. But your pursuit of reconciliation, and by the way, that reconciliation, that's a two-way road. Your, your pursuit of that, your initiation of that, might be the thing that God uses to transform their hearts. It might just be the thing that God uses to transform their hearts. And as was true for Joseph and his family, it might be the bridge that God uses to restore that relationship, if appropriate. So let me ask you this morning... To consider this, what does it look like for you to pursue reconciliation with those you've wronged and for those who have wronged you? What does it look like this morning for me right now to pursue reconciliation? What steps do I need to take in order to do that? And hear this. Genesis 42 is a testimony of how God sovereignly and providentially was at work in Joseph's life, even through unimaginable tragedy brought on by the most difficult of relationships. As people who know what relational brokenness looks like, that's all of us, by the way, as people who know what relational brokenness looks like, my hope is that our hearts would see this story and be encouraged. Our spirits and souls would be lifted when we say, God, you've allowed me to experience that, and I know you're going to use it for good. Maybe, maybe encouragement is needed in your heart. But maybe you say, God, maybe you're shaping and refining me from this. Either way, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but, but I trust you to do it. Maybe that's, maybe that's you this morning. 
Maybe this morning you, you see that God is working in you this, this idea of being supernaturally forgiving to the people you think are unforgivable. And you say, God, well, I, I know you can do that in my heart. I trust you to do that work too. And maybe you need to make a hard and long journey towards reconciliation with your brothers. Maybe that needs to be what happens for you this morning. But hear this, the testimony of Genesis 42 and all of the rest of the Bible, of all these difficult relationships and struggles and trials and hardships, the testimony of all these things tells us this, that God is faithful to do that work. God is faithful to do that work. Are you going to submit to it? Are you going to submit to it? Are you going to submit to how God might be working in your life through difficult people and difficult relationships? I said this morning, and I didn't, I didn't plan to say this, but it, it comes to mind, and so I'll offer this encouragement also. This morning, that person that you've wronged or have been wronged by is here. Maybe they'll be here at 11. But they're here, and you know they're here. That tension and that, that pain, that frustration, that anger, that bitterness, it's like a wall every time you walk in here. That may be here this morning. I think it's consistent in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that if you come to the altar to offer sacrifices and there remember that you have a wrong, that you've wronged against your brother, there's some kind of tension, relational brokenness between you. He says, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and come back. We can't in good conscience submit and be obedient to the Lord if we are not pursuing reconciliation with his family. If that's you this morning and that person's here, start bridging that gap. I'm not saying it's got to happen right this second. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Like I said, I'm starting this sentence and finding where it goes along the way. In other words, I'm Michael Scott. (laughs) But I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant. If that exists right here, I'd encourage you, pursue reconciliation today. Create that bridge today. I don't know what God's going to do through it, but I know we can be faithful. Let's pray. Father, in light of your mercy for us, all the wrong and frustration and pain and hurt that we have experienced through other people seems so small in comparison to the debt that stood between us and you. Yet, Father, you modeled in Christ something radical. You call enemies, friends, and sons and daughters. You allow the kind of people to sit at your table that we wouldn't let live in the same city as us. God, you have forgiven us of much. And you you call us, you say, you tell us, let that transform the way that you relate and view other people. God, we ask that you would do that. We know that we experience relational brokenness. So there's hard stuff that comes in our life through other people. Maybe, maybe we experience that as the perpetrator. Maybe we experience that as the victim. But God, help us to know and rest assured that you are at work through it all, that you are sovereign and good. Our good Father does good things in the lives of his people, even through evil. Father, help our hearts to know that and rest in that. And Father, this morning, I pray through the conviction of your word that you start a radical work of reconciliation between brothers and sisters this morning. 
Father, I pray that we'd be obedient and submit to that. And Father, I pray by, your, by the work of, of, of your spirit, by your grace alone, Father, strengthen us, renew us, transform us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.